Welcome to the July 2018 Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This month's episode is a bit truncated as your host, that's me, Ford Vox, was away for a bit on a much needed vacation. Now I'm back and here with our featured interview with Dr. David Howell of the University of Colorado. Please enjoy. Uh, Dr. Howell is an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics at uh, the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and he's lead researcher at the Children's Hospital Colorado Sports Medicine Center. We brought uh, Dr. Howell onto the rehab cast today to discuss his paper in the uh, July issue uh, of the archives entitled uh, Detection of Acute and Long-Term Effects of Concussion, Dual-Task Gait Balance Control versus Computerized Neurocognitive Testing. Uh, Dr. Howell, certainly everybody who's in the, in the concussion world is, is uh, familiar with the, the latter, um, given that uh, impact testing has become uh, pretty much uh, standard now. Um, I see you're, you're very much uh, interested in seeing if we can kind of uh, further uh, refine uh, our analysis of uh, con- concussed patients, detecting who's, you know, uh, has a more serious concussion or not relatively, or just uh, screening in, in the first place. And you've got a variety of papers out there uh, looking at that. Um, this one is, is certainly uh, uh, has a lot of potentially practical elements for the clinic with dual task uh, and so forth, and we'll talk about what that is. But, but you're really looking to kind of solve, uh, you know, this problem of, of finding persistent uh, physiological uh, changes. A lot of people are doing that with, uh, with imaging uh, as well. Maybe you've done some of that uh, research uh, also. This one, given that it's kind of detecting something uh, like, a, like a gait change, seems, seems uh, certainly uh, perhaps more, more clinically relevant sometimes than what we see in, uh, in imaging findings. Um, now, uh, uh, I see that the dual task uh, gait analysis isn't, isn't even your only such project. You also have a recent paper uh, looking at, uh, at eye tracking as well. To start with, could you tell me a little bit about, about what you're looking at with eye tracking? Yeah, certainly. Um, so thanks again for having me on today. I um, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and, and hopefully kind of delve into some of the, the different things that we're working on. Um, is so uh, related to eye tracking. Um, that's kind of a, a new endeavor uh, for me personally. Um, I'm I'm particularly interested in overall kind of the the different disturbances um, that we can measure following a concussion, and I think um, you know practically clinically implementing things that we can put in the the hands of clinicians to identify some of these deficits are really going to help dictate uh, management plans, um, early interventions, or specialist referral. Um, Related to to eye tracking, uh, one of what we did, uh, one study that we did, really looked at the the role of um, uh, near point of convergence testing with um, uh, and how that interacts with uh, gait performance. And, and really what we were interested in is um, could kind of a clinical test, a, a somewhat crude test of uh, uh, eye, eye tracking or visual function, I guess we, we would say, um, does that uh, relate to the ability to simultaneously walk and complete a, a secondary task or even just walk on, on your own? And, and what we found was that um, uh, while those individuals uh, who had uh, impaired near point of convergence, um, kind of a clinical uh, diagnostic 
tool, essentially, uh, meaning the, the point at which they reported diplopia was greater than five centimeters from the tip of their nose. Um, we, we found that individuals that had that impairment also walked slower after a concussion relative to a control group. And so um, the group that then had kind of what we would consider normal convergence um, walked similar to the control. So there's no difference between them. So um, that's really kind of, you know, a, a first step into this. We're not um, certainly saying that these two things are directly related. But if you think about what happens during locomotion and as you're walking forward, um, the, the effect that your vision plays on your gait balance control is, is quite large in that you have to simultaneously integrate all sorts of different sources of stimuli. And, and as humans, as we walk in a bipedal fashion, we have to um, take that information, that visual information, and constantly readjust as we're walking forward. And it's a relatively uh, complex process uh, for the central nervous system to complete. And then if we think about kind of just the, the distribution of uh, brain pathways, um, uh, you know, throughout the brain, we're, again, as humans, highly visual creatures. So you would expect that um, with any sort of impaired vision, or excuse me, with, with any sort of uh, uh, brain injury, there would be some effect to, uh, to vision somewhere along the line because there's um, so much of our brain is devoted to vision. And then that would perhaps affect other things downstream. Fascinating. Now, uh, so, so eye tracking would be kind of uh, one means of kind of really stressing the brain a little bit more and uh, having to, uh, to kind of capitalize on, on different regions of the brain a little bit more uh, widely distributed. Another is this uh, dual task uh, assessment. Now, let's take a little bit of a look at the history first. You cite, you cite actually a, a recent um, uh, kind of review paper looking at uh, the effects of, of gait and concussion and kind of lasting effects of, of gait alone to begin with. Of course, you're doing kind of a second level analysis with dual task, and we'll talk about what that is. But tell us in the first place what we know about the persistence of just gait deficits with concussion. Yeah, certainly. So I think this is an area uh, that, that really of research in the concussion world that's emerged quite a bit over the last several years. Um, uh, kind of of note of that, I think that there's four different systematic reviews that have been published in the last uh, six to eight months that have gone through and summarized the literature uh, that, it, that has examined the role of gait um, as a testing outcome measure uh, for concussion. So I think that there's a lot of interest in this, and, and that comes primarily from, you know, uh, at least, so my background is in a, as, a, as an athletic trainer, and I think that um, as athletic trainers, we're always looking for different clinical tests that aren't going to break the bank or, you know, require all sorts of time or anything like that, um, but also are going to give us some good uh, uh, information to help influence our clinical decision making. Uh, so what we, f what we see is that using static postural tests um, is a very common thing, but at least the kind of anecdotal clinical feedback that I get from people that I talk to is that by just assessing postural stability in different stances, um, you know, while a person is standing still, we see that they recover pretty fast and, and the, there's kind of a learning effect that goes into it and um, it, it becomes difficult to distinguish what's learning from what's recovery. Um, and it also become, becomes hard to distinguish kind of what is an error, you know, if you have somebody close their eyes for 20 seconds in a certain stance or something like that. Um, and again, if you look back, those, those tests were designed to be more of the acute diagnostic kind of overt balance deficit tests. Um, what we see with gait is that it's, a, it's an entirely different task to dynamically control balance 
um, as an individual walks uh, where there's less of a learning effect perhaps because we practice this on a day-to-day basis. At least most athletes um, walk from point A to point B and, and the study that we had was in youth athletes and so they're constantly walking around. So there's an inherent gait pattern that's fairly repeatable and consistent across time. And so after a concussion relative to a control group, we see that in order to kind of maintain balance control, um, because that that ability to um, execute those motor commands, a fairly high, highly complex um, system to, like I said, execute those commands and, and walk in a kind of a normal fashion to that individual becomes a little bit difficult. So what we see is that there's a compensation where the person has to either slow down or re- by reducing how fast they step, how many steps per minute they take, or how long their strides are, as well as we kind of see this destabilization where they kind of walk a little bit more in this side-to-side fashion where they're kind of swaying more back and forth. And that and that sway in particular, because because gait analysis can get really complex. So you're gonna you you decide in the study to pick out a particular variable, and I gather uh, other studies have have done this as well. Um, what what you think is the most important? Kind of simplify the analysis. Also, again, making it more more practical. You're talking about uh, the center of mass, medial lateral displacement, primarily in, in the frontal plane. I gather. Yeah. So that is uh again as as you mentioned that that's kind of a, a variable that we had settled on after a, a few different years of research where um, actually back in 2013 in, in archives was one of the first studies that I published um, that looked at uh, kind of longitudinally finding deficits in the ability to um, um, or I guess another way to say it would be to uh, individuals who walk with a, after a concussion demonstrated more side-to-side sway, meaning they had less balance control, and those deficits continued to persist longer than symptoms, symptom resolution, for example. And so um, uh, what we found was that this is a, a good way to differentiate between a group of concussed athletes and, and controls. Uh, just because it's a measurable um, and it and its objective. However, it was pretty subtle, right? So uh, <laughs> tracking a uh, the, the center of mass medial lateral displacement for an individual um, is challenging and it's time consuming. I think it's really good for uh, laboratory grade research. For example, what, what we were doing uh, when I was uh, performing this research at the University of Oregon, um, it would take about two hours to run through the entire protocol, including impact testing and um, the the full gait analysis, plus all the analysis time on the back end. So um, we kind of looked at it more from a kind of a hypothesis uh, generating, um, maybe not as much direct clinical applicability at that time. Um, Since then, we've kind of moved into using wearable sensor systems and kind of developing other uh, proxy tests that uh, somewhat represent those same demands, but have a a more clinical measurable outcome. So for example, um, one thing that that, uh, people have begun to use more and more is the tandem gait test, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it's a part of the SCAT test in battery or the standard sport concussion assessment tool. Um, And uh, there's a three meter strip of tape and the individual walks in a heel toe fashion as fast as they can uh, uh, down, turn around, come back. And, and certainly we didn't develop it. It's kind of emerged from other areas of research and, and been adopted in the concussion world. Um, but the nice part about this test is that all you need is a strip of tape and a stopwatch to complete it. And um, it, it tests that ability to 
move and then perhaps move and think at the same time because you can add a secondary cognitive task to it. So um, developing these kind of more clinically pragmatic tools is certainly something that I'm interested in doing, but that all kind of emanates from this observation here that we're seeing these persistent um, uh, deficits in the ability to um, simultaneously walk and think um, and, and that is, again, observed in that, that medial lateral center of mass motion where, again, it becomes kind of a, uh, an indicator of the, the stability of gait uh, uh, across multiple gait cycles. And so as people um, have less stable gait, uh, perhaps due to the concussion, they tend to sway more back and forth. And we see that then kind of manifest itself in other ways with, with different clinical tests. Okay. And, and certainly that's one of the primary outcome measures of, uh, of this study and kind of getting to the nuts and, and bolts of this study for our listeners who presumably haven't, haven't read it yet. It's uh, uh, definitely uh, very valuable in that you're looking at people within the first three days after concussion, then most importantly, two months later, and you have a, a really solid uh, group here. Uh, I believe it's uh, 51, uh, right, uh, concussed patients compared to uh, a group of uh, 44 controls. Um, both uh, adolescents and, and teenagers from a variety of sports. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, the, the numbers are correct, uh, about uh, close to 100 total subjects, and, and we took uh, 51 individuals. We, they were uh, both high school and collegiate uh, aged, uh, primarily, primarily athletes. We had a few that, that didn't necessarily sustain their concussion during sports, um, but kind of other recreational activities similar to sports. Um, and we tested them initially within the first 72 hours of injury. And that was kind of our acute post-concussion window where we wanted to see how they were doing uh, when they kind of were first very symptomatic um, as well as um, um, a, a control kind of at time zero, we called it. And then following up with them two months later, you know, we expect uh, most people's symptoms to recover within two months. Um, and we expect most people's kind of cognitive abilities to normalize over the next two months. Um, and so that, that's kind of taken from previous research. And so by, by uh, following up at that time point with this additional variable, um, we figured that perhaps we would see these prolonged effects show up in uh, the ability to walk and think at the same time relative to kind of these isolated assessments of how do you feel or just, you know, remembering words on a computer or testing the reaction time kind of in isolation. And again, the, the, most of these people had returned to sports at this time. And if you think about returning to sports and the demands of those sports, um, sports really are uh, more than a dual task, right? We ask people to walk and, and simultaneously complete a task. Um, but when they get back onto the playing field, they not only have to do that, they, they have to run, um, they have to jump, but then they have to think about the play that they're doing, um, what the opponent is doing, how they're going to pass the ball to their, their teammate over there. And, and it becomes a very kind of, there's, there's a lot of processes happening. And so if we can perturb the person um, just with a single cognitive perturbation that outlasts these kind of isolated uh, assessments, uh, perhaps this is more realistic of an on-field assessment. Excellent. And like I said at the outset, people listening to this podcast probably are going to know what, what impact testing is, what the symptom severity scales are and that type of thing. The new thing here, which uh, which most people certainly aren't doing in clinical practice, is the dual task, and, and you're using a Stroop uh, task when people are, are walking. Tell us, tell us exactly what it is you were looking at there. Yeah, so the Stroop task um, obviously emanates from kind of a more traditional neuropsychological testing battery. 
Um, and what that is, is somebody will see, for example, kind of the most classic uh, example would be somebody will see a, uh, a word presented to them and it'll be a word of a color and it'll be in a color. So it'll be the word red presented. And uh, there's a congruent condition where the text color is red, or there's an incongruent condition where the text color is blue, for example. And it asks the person to differentiate between those two. Um, due to the role of vision um, on gate, we kind of wanted to eliminate that kind of confounding factor where if we had, you know, television screens along the walkways, we had people walking, um, they might focus on, on, you know, what the presentation was, and that might independently slow them down as they were processing that information. So instead, we used an auditory Stroop task where the individual was asked to respond to a high or low pitch and the person was saying the word high or low. And they were asked to identify the pitch that the, the, the person was speaking rather than the word. And so, um, again, you have this inherent congruent, incongruent condition and it becomes difficult to distinguish between those two uh, uh, potentially while you're walking. Um, and so the, that would play on a computer speaker as they were walking and we would tell them to start walking and, uh, and it would start playing and it would continuously play. There would be four different stimuli as they walked through kind of the motion capture volume and we collected the data from them. So while they were walking, they were engaged in this test. Um, and so they had to balance that, that dis distribution of attention between continuing to walk and, you know, not fall over, which luckily nobody did, um, and, and complete this task. And, and there becomes kind of this, uh, what, well, at least what we observed was there was a reduction in the ability to do both. So if you just test single task gait where somebody's just walking, um, you don't see as much of a deficit. But when you test them and, and they're thinking, you see a, a greater deficit for that concussed group relative to the control group. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you show that uh, the, the, the neurocognitive measures uh, don't, uh, uh, well, there are, there are two uh, persisting at, at two months, just uh, some deficits in verbal memory and visual processing. Interestingly, both, both of those, I suppose, maybe, maybe the other domains as well, are kind of necessary to perform a, a dual task uh, in terms of kind of retaining what the task is and, and uh, the, the, uh, potentially some the visual processing element of, of gate uh, is necessary as well. Um, but, uh, but at any rate, um, most of the neurocognitive testing is, is not still sensitive at, at two months later, unlike uh, the dual task. Yeah, that's correct. And, and so when you compare them just independent of any other thing, so at, at the univariable level, obviously acutely post-concussion, everything is <laughs> uh, not doing so well, which, which we would expect. There's a lot of symptoms and, and, and the concussion group performed quite, uh, uh, quite a bit worse than the control group. Um, and then we see improvement uh, across the, the subsequent two months for that concussed group. Um, and relative consistency for the control group, which I think is good, maybe a little bit of a practice effect. Um, and again, at the univariable level, um, we did detect that both visual uh, processing speed and verbal memory deficits were, were apparent. Um, however, when you place them all in a model together to try to um, identify which of these variables when placed in the context of each other are associated with essentially group membership, concussion or control, um, at that initial test, uh, our dual task center of mass uh, variable, as well as visual memory, uh, the composite score, were both significantly associated uh, with uh, being in the concussion group. So, so the concussed group had 
uh, uh, worse visual memory composite scores and higher or more dual task center mass displacement, meaning less gait stability. Um, and we also controlled for both gender and age because there was a relatively higher proportion of uh, males in the, uh, in the sample and, uh, and the age uh, varied quite widely from about 14 to 25. Um, and if we did the same analysis with the two month uh, at the two month follow up test, the only variable that was still associated with concussion was our dual task gait measures, medial lateral center mass displacement, which means that when considered in the context of each other, uh, each of those other kind of impact variables were no longer significantly associated with having a concussion. Uh, and in, importantly, it seems uh, the, the post-concussive symptom severity is, is not associated with your group membership at, at two months later either, correct? Right. Yeah. So we had, um, again, at the initial, so if we looked at the, we used the post-concussion symptom scale. So ranking zero to, I think, 132 would be the max. Zero is no symptoms. 132 would be the maximum, you know, this person is doing terribly. Um, what we found was that at the initial test, obviously, like I mentioned, the concussion group was much worse um, than the control group. Uh, but at the two-month time point, most of those individuals in the concussed group had, had returned to a level of zero. However, there were a few that kind of still maintained some persistent symptomology. So um, the, the mean PCSS score at that two-month time point was an eight relative to the controls, which was a four. So um, that wasn't significant um, when, when comparing those two. Now, one question I had in terms of the types of analysis you did, and maybe, maybe you did and I just missed it in, in the paper, I see uh, certainly you're independently – uh, looking at the variables, trying to match uh, people up uh, with with uh, each of the outcome measures that you have with their group status. What about <clears throat> comparing the variables amongst each other? Can you can you say anything in terms of uh, your dual task performance and whether that says you're doing better or worse on the impact, or whether you got more or less symptoms? Yeah, um, we were. That's uh, I think that's in table four of the paper where. Um, what we wanted to know was, okay, so we see these kind of persistent deficits perhaps in, in one domain or the other, but are your uh, impact scores influencing how you walk and how you control your balance? Um, and interestingly, both at the initial test and at the two-month follow-up test, um, we saw no significant associations between these variables, which um, to me kind of suggests that there's kind of a, a perhaps a, a different trajectory of recovery for these different variables. And while we kind of think that um, concussed patients are going to uh, recover along maybe a, a more linear trajectory, there may be some improvements in some domains that, that take quicker and some that take longer, but they, they might not be completely linear with each other. Yeah, that is just so fascinating. Um, uh, really, I mean, uh, of course, the, the, what, you're, what you're showing in your study with uh, the post-concussive symptoms, uh, uh, is very consistent with kind of the the large uh, debate uh, surrounding uh, that whole that whole syndrome and the fact that uh, and it's been previously established that there's some separation there between the cognitive uh, findings and maybe a little bit more concrete than symptom reports and now you're reporting the same thing uh, with this dual task measure you got yet another kind of perhaps more physiological thing uh, than a self-reported symptom survey um, again showing that there's some kind of disconnect there between uh, complaints and at least what we can tell about physiological change. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what um, kind of uh, a lot of what we're trying to do currently is balance that objectivity with uh, something that is relevant for clinicians um, that, that can help um, augment the evaluation that, that symptoms alone can't distinguish. And I don't want to downplay symptoms necessarily, obviously, because 
priority number one should be to get the patient feeling better. Um, but we, we also realize the limitations um, that, that symptoms are not specific to concussion. Um, somebody might report, you know, even in our control group, you can see that, um, you know, on average, they, they reported um, a, a four PCSS score, meaning there's maybe four different symptoms that they're feeling a, a mild degree of um, uh, some sort of, you know, symptom severity. Maybe they've got a mild headache. And, and these can be influenced by all sorts of things. Um, and so in addition, especially athletes, um, I think we, we all recognize that a lot of athletes may not be forthright and honest <laughs> necessarily um, when it comes to saying that they're completely better because, you know, they want to get back in the game. And, and, you know, we're also relying on their brain that is impaired um, to tell you how their brain is feeling. So it's a little bit of a flawed logic there. So um, there, there certainly are some some value to symptoms, but I think that placed in the larger context, the more objective, the more objectivity that we can use in our clinical evaluations, I think the, the better that we're going to be able to um, help that patient um, or facilitate that recovery process for them. Yeah. Yeah, there's such a big difference between the, the concussed populations and if you're kind of just looking at uh, 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 civilian uh, slips and, and falls and auto accidents and that, that type of thing, uh, there's you know, certainly going to be a different variety of symptom reporting. It'd be fascinating, but obviously much harder <laughs> to do this similar type of research amongst that kind of more grab bag population, see what differences there are. Um, although that being said, I can certainly... Um, uh, if this type of uh, of testing continues to uh, become more practical, uh, I can certainly see kind of a, a forensic uh, use for it in terms of analysis of, of head injury cases and kind of documenting some kind of the more concrete elements of change. And you kind of get at what the future implications of this may be because because uh, you know, there's certainly been some demonstration that there's increased risk for accidents for athletes uh, or further injury following a concussion. You know, what does it say if you're dual tasking on something relatively simple uh, shows that you've got a little bit of increased uh, uh, swaying your, your center of mass. What does that ultimately add up to in daily life where people are, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time and doing a whole lot of different things? Is this going to be something that might tip the balance towards some, some future uh, accident or injury? Certainly. And um, this is another thing that, that the kind of a line of research that we're working on, um, we've seen from kind of epidemiologic and observational studies, another emerging area of research in the last maybe three or four years um, is when athletes go back to play after their concussion and we follow them in the course of maybe the next year or so, um, the, the majority of studies suggest that they're more likely to incur uh, a subsequent musculoskeletal lower extremity injury. And so we think that we, well, sorry, let me back up. We, there's a, another body of evidence that supports the idea that um, if an individual independent of a concussion exhibits some sort of neuromuscular control, postural control, or attentional distribution deficit, they are also more likely to go on and sustain uh, another uh, sport-related injury. So pairing those two thoughts together, we think that if we're not testing the individual in the way that they're going to be playing on the field, so again, this concept of dual task, instead we're doing these isolated tests of postural stability here, maybe vision here, maybe cognition over here, um, we're not getting the full picture. We're sending these people back to play, and there are these kind of, again, they're very subtle, but there may be some neurologic changes that are responsible for um, having uh, this increased injury risk. And so 
I think that, that this dual task testing is perhaps one way to identify these persistent deficits that, again, is measurable and is objective. Um, but, you know, even more so moving more toward sport specific movement with that kind of thought element um, can can perhaps identify those people. Well, it's probably not going to be everybody um, identifying those people that are at a greater risk for incurring another injury and perhaps um, developing interventions that we can use or um, uh, some sort of you know screening program to say, okay, maybe you're at a 60% risk for having an ankle sprain here in the next uh, year. So let's do what we can to prevent that on the front side rather than um, having more and more injuries uh, pile up over the years, particularly in that high school age range. Now, what do you think needs to be done in terms of further exploration of this phenomenon uh, before it is time to roll it out in the clinic? Because you talk about clinical implications and how this you know may be what what needs to be proven next um, and also what needs to be done to make it practical to do this type of analysis in the clinic yeah so i think that that's really where where the field is heading right now is to try to identify uh as i mentioned earlier earlier clinically pragmatic methods to get at these same kind of um, ideas and and so one example of of something that we've been working on as i mentioned is the tandem gait test um, because you can pair that motor task a dynamic uh, motor control test with uh, a cognitive test and um, it becomes very difficult for the athlete to kind of game that test um, and and their ability to um, you know prioritize one task or the other it becomes pretty evident pretty fast if they're if they're just not trying hard um, or if they're prioritizing you know one domain or the other um, so I think that that's one example of kind of where we're heading. The other example would be the use of wearables um, and smartphone technology and things like that that exist, you know, in our everyday lives. What are things that clinicians have in their hands already that they can um, implement to measure some of these deficits? So we're, we're continually working on kind of developing ways um, um, to use the kind of ubiquitous uh, accelerometers and gyroscopes that everybody has to, to measure gait out. Outcomes. Um, and there's a variety of different platforms that already exist, and, and there's a variety of upcoming ones as well. Um, so those are the kind of the two big things. As far as the, the big clinical implications, you know, I think that that's the crux right now is you can measure this, you can identify it. Well, now what do you do with that information? <laughs> um, and so we're probably, you know, a few steps away from that right now, but um, we're working on developing some research programs um, specifically to identify that. Uh, and to, um, you know, again, get on that prevention side rather than letting injuries pile up um, over the course of a, of a sports career, um, leading to, you know, some long-term problems. Excellent. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate your participating in the conversation today. I think this is a great overview of the paper. I like your whole whole line of research, kind of your, your mission focus on, on really uh, practical things to, to make uh, – uh, clinical care uh, better, which uh, which both uh, patients and clinicians certainly certainly need. So that's that's great. You have obviously have a, a clinical background yourself as an athletic trainer, and that that helps a lot. Yeah, wonderful. Well, uh, thanks again for for having me on to talk about it. And that's it for this month's rehab cast. Please tune in next month for news briefs and another fascinating dive into the latest rehabilitation research. This 
podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.